This morning we continue on in a series that we've been in for some time called How To, and just looking at a number of practical things in the Christian life and the Christian faith and what that looks like and how we really can take and what the Bible teaches us and how we can live that out. Last week, um, I shared with you kind of a, a standalone message called How to Disarm Fear in the series, but not, not tied to other messages in and out before, but How to Disarm Fear. We just talked about some of the ways that the enemy works against us, some of the things that God can help us with to be able to uh, really lean on him and to grow in him as we, uh, if you struggle with fear, to be able to journey through that. And one of the things that I had shared uh, last week that I wanted to make mention of because some have asked me what I had shared that at the end of my message, I shared that Teresa plans to launch on a Wednesday night coming up very soon. She's launching a class on how to overcome anxiety and depression. And that class is going to be starting on Wednesday, March 14th. It's a 10-week class. And please know it's open to everyone. It's open to everyone to attend, to be able to receive from that. There's a uh, a little bit of a video segment that will go with that, and then she's got some things she's gonna share that will go with that as well. And I just really encourage you, if you struggle with fear, if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with depression, you really need to attend this class because we're really believing it's gonna be a next step that God's going to use to continue to propel you forward to live in the freedom that I believe that God has for you. One of the things that I talked about um, last week was the importance of recognizing God's word and its place in our lives and the strength that he gives us. We talked about finding your sword and shield verse, a verse that can protect your heart from the attacks of the enemy as well as one that can cut down the lies of the enemy to recognize him. And one of the things that I believe as a believer, if you're a Christian here, one of the things that you'll hear of often, you'll recognize is the importance of recognizing and knowing God's word. And when it comes to recognizing and knowing God's word, I believe that we go to God's word for insight. I believe we go to God's word for understanding. We go to God's word for comfort. But sometimes when we go and we find a specific verse in God's word or we find a specific passage that we'll look at, there is um, great comfort and there's truth that we take and we apply to it. But what we can't forget when it comes to those specific verses is we can't forget is that they fit in the context of, of the big picture. And the big picture in scripture from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is the ongoing story of how God is working in human history. It's the ongoing story of how God works. We can look at true stories from the past of men and women of old and how God demonstrated his faithfulness, how God used an average everyday person to be able to bring about just supernatural things that get the purposes of God. But we can't forget that it's a, it's a big picture of the ongoing story of how God works. And it's a reminder. We can look at what the Bible teaches us and it, re, it reveals to us the nature of God. It reveals to us how we can look to and lean upon him and how he desires to work in our life shows us how he desires to work through our lives. But not only does the, does the Bible give us the big picture of how God is working, another thing that the Bible tells us when we look in Scripture is that it's not only a story of God, the ongoing ways of how God works, but it also gives us a picture and an understanding of how the enemy works. See, the Bible tells us that we have a very real enemy, the devil. We talked about him some last week. We're going to look at a couple of verses this morning on him as well. And I like to look at him this morning uh, in terms of considering him as life's bully. And so I'd love to share with you um, one, the first part of a two-part message this week and next week uh, called How to Face Life's Bully. We looked at a little bit last week at his tactics, but this morning I just wanted to dig a little deeper into a specific story that I believe God can use to speak to us. And when you look in Scripture, 
when one of the things, and this week I'm going to give you three points out of the story we're going to look at. Next week I'll give you three. But one of the things when you look in the Old Testament, and we'll see these stories of how God used men and women, we'll read stories of kings and queens and average everyday people of how God used them, and we'll see these stories and we see these adversaries that they'll, they'll come against, these enemies that they'll face. And we can look at it as something of the past, something we can learn from, but sometimes while there, it's a very true story, it's not a made-up story, the adversary they're facing is not made up, it's a very true story, sometimes in the Bible, the, the adversary that will come up against God's person, God's man, God's woman, God's people, sometimes that adversary that will raise up against them is, in the, while it's a very real story, what the Bible in the big picture will help us understand is that adversary coming against God's people or God's man or God's woman, that adversary who's coming against them is really giving us a picture of how the enemy works against us. And so the Bible tells us that from time to time we'll see these pictures um, in one story that I want to look at this morning that the Bible gives us this imagery and understanding is the, is the story of the king of Assyria. If you look in the prophet uh, Isaiah and his writings in the Old Testament, he talks about Assyria, the king of Assyria, and there's times where we get this picture of how he works and how he worked against God's people, and it began to give us a picture, an insight on some of the tactics that the enemy uses against us. And so this morning, I'd love to take time to look. If you have your Bible, you can look with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, it's a lengthy story, a lengthy passage. We're going to look at a few verses on the front end, and then we'll look at a few verses on the tail end of the story, and then we'll kind of fill it in as we go. I want to give you three things this morning, three things next week on how to face life's bully. And you can look at these. I've tried to take the, the points, the things that I'm sharing with you, um, to give you kind of little phrases to remember and how we look at this and how we can understand it and how God arms us, how he prepares us, how we do face the enemy, how we rely on God's strength in the midst of it. But let's look at this together. And before I read this, this story is not only found in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, it's also found in 2 Kings 18, and it's also found in Isaiah 63. And I've heard someone say before that when the Bible records something once, when it's, when it's, when it's put in Scripture once, we need to pay attention, it's God's Word. When it's put in Scripture a second time, we need to realize that it, it is pretty significant to God. And when it's put in Scripture three specific times, three different places, we need to sit up and listen the story that we're about to hear is recorded three different places in Scripture, uh, and all three accounts give a little bit of different detail. We'll look at some of the different details, pull them together as we go. But let's look in Second Chronicles chapter 32, beginning in verse number 1. We'll read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll skip over to verse 20. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked all the springs and the streams that flowed throughout the land. Why should the king of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and rebuilding towers on it. He built another wall outside that one, and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square of the city gate and encouraged them with these words. Be strong and courageous. You may remember those words from last week. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a great power, greater power with us than with him. 
With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is our Lord, the Lord our God, to help us and to fight our battles. And the, king, the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. And then look over in verse 20. We'll skip to the end of the story. Verse number 20. It says, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all the others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded among the nations. So we look at this story, as I'd mentioned, it gives us a picture of God's faithfulness to his people, but it also gives us a picture or insight on how the enemy can work against God's people. So just to give you a few things to consider, the first one that I would give you to consider when we think about facing life's bullying, we recognize how God is faithful, we recognize how the enemy works against us, is I think the first thing I would give you to consider is by simply remembering that every mountain has a valley. Every mountain has a valley. That's kind of a simple way of remembering that life comes with high times and low times. Sometimes I'll, I'll talk with individuals, I'll talk with believers, I'll talk with uh, someone who will be talking about these significant moments where God has done great things in their life, these significant ways from Scripture that he's speaking to them, significant ways of how he is working in their life, but then when a hardship comes, when a challenge comes, when a difficulty comes, they immediately are just shocked and blown away. I'm like, why is this happening to me? As if it's abnormal in some way that a believer or a Christian should be going through some sort of level of hardship. And what we have to remember is that what Scripture teaches us is that life does come with those highs and lows. There's going in your spiritual journey, in your relationship with Christ. There's going to be highs and lows. There's going to be ups and downs in the journey. And I really believe, and I would challenge you with this, to remember that when you enter those low seasons, those challenging seasons in life, to remember that God uses those to refine and reveal your character. He'll use the challenging seasons to test and, and help you see areas that, that need growth, areas that need to be challenged, areas that need like Hezekiah to be able to be addressed. Had the challenges from the enemy not come, the gaps in the wall may never have been filled. Had the challenges from the enemy come, he may have never addressed some of the other things that had to be addressed to be ready when challenges would come. And something we need to keep in mind, if you're a believer here this morning, one of the things that you need to keep in mind, sometimes we read in scripture or you hear someone like myself will say, well, when God brings it, when a testing comes into your life, and they say, well, I don't think God's ever supposed to test us. When we hear the word testing, when it comes to God's work in our life versus testing from how the enemy would works in our lives, we need to think about them in two very different pictures. See, when the enemy brings testing, when the devil brings testing into your life, the testing or the challenges or the hardship he'll bring, the, the intent, the root of it is to, is to weaken your faith, and the root of it is to undermine and destroy your integrity, is to basically make you crumble and fall. When we read of testing in James chapter 1, it talks about the testing that, that, that God can use and bring in our lives. When we read testing in Scripture in the, that God would bring into our lives where the enemy's testing is meant to destroy, the testing that we need to think about that God would bring into the life of a believer or allow to happen in the life of a believer is meant to strengthen, to fortify, to help us see and recognize areas that need growth. 
The best way you could think about it when it comes to the enemy is that if you had a bookshelf and he had a hammer and he's trying to destroy it. In God, in the picture from thinking of the testing that God would bring is pictured as a bookshelf, that God is the builder, and just as a carpenter would then take that bookshelf and begin to test the ability that it has to hold and to stay together so that it can then strengthen or fix the areas that need, that need to be strengthened or to be fortified, that's the way that God works in our lives. So when, he, when something comes in our lives that we can look at it, we need to recognize there's always a spiritual dimension to what you're going through. Had times that you're going through life, you're going through things, you're going through challenges, you're going through hardship, and you're just trying to solve it in the natural. But to stop and to realize that sometimes the issues and the challenges you're facing are rooted in the supernatural. And you will never, you will never solve something in the supernatural if you try to bring only natural means into it. It's a reminder that we have to recognize and stop that life does come with the highs and lows, and it's part of the journey of the life that we're in. But when you look at the story... If you look at the story of King Hezekiah, look at verse number, verse number one uh, in chapter 32 again. It says, after all, the, all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. And then it goes on to describe that all, all that he did. But it said, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, all that he had done in, in the King James Version or the New King James Version, it says, after all these deeds of faithfulness that he had just demonstrated a great deal of faithfulness to God, and then the attack came. He had just demonstrated a great amount of faithfulness and, and devotion to God, and if you look back from the time that he first began and became king, his dad was a very wicked king in the land of Judah, and Hezekiah stepped forward, and within his first, mo first month, he set out to make a difference. If you look over the list of what he did, some of the things that he began to do was the first thing he did was he went and he began to destroy all of the, the altars that were set up to foreign gods as well as all of the high places. Now, when we, when we read about in the Bible and we read the, the term high places, sometimes I can remember in my mind, I used to think this, you think about high places, it was the, these were altars that were built up around where the people of God lived, around Israel, around Judah. When we think of high places and these altars that are built, sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking these high places that were built up around the city were used to worship all of these foreign gods and these foreign deities and things like that. That's not the case. There were altars to different gods that Hezekiah set out and destroyed, but when it comes to the high places that were built up around the city, those were places that people had gone and had built by their own standards, their own ways, their own desires, so that they could then worship God how they wanted they were still worshiping the God of Israel, but they were worshiping him on their terms. So what Hezekiah first did, and he was willing to take some hard steps, some difficult steps that would not have been favorable to the people, is he said, I'm going to deal with this compromise in our worship. The high places are a symbol, a reminder that we cannot take the standards of God and blend them with the ways of our culture. That it's not a matter of doing Christianity on our terms and our ways so that it's comfortable for how we want to do it. That's what Hezekiah set out to do. He said, we're, we're going to get back in track with what God would have for us to do. So not only did he deal with the high places and the, and the, the altars to the pagan gods, secondly, he set out to, deal, to clean out the temple. If you look in the story in the chapters before, the temple had gotten boarded up. People weren't using the temple anymore. It had become a place of storage, a place where just wasn't really cared about. So it says he reopened the temple and he began to clean out the temple. And the story says it took 16 days to clean out the temple. It took 16 days to get all the junk out so they could be refocused and reestablished on worshiping the one true God. And then the third thing he did 
was he, he reestablished a line of priests. It says he, re, he consecrated the priests. He reestablished a line of priests. What he did was reestablish a consistent way of communicating with God. At that, this point in history that God was communicating primarily with individuals through the priesthood, through the worship in the temple, and so he reestablished a line of consistent communication with God and telling people this matters. This matters to make sure that our relationship with God is right. And then the, the fourth thing that he did was he led the nation in repentance and restoration and revival. And so he had been abundantly faithful. He had demonstrated himself to be faithful and to show himself true and committed to the way God wanted things to be, the way that he needed to live, the way he needed to lead the nation. And it says immediately after all this faithfulness, then all of a sudden the enemy comes and attack. And I think it's a reminder when I look at this story and I realize that even in all of the faithfulness that Hezekiah had demonstrated, there's nowhere in scripture that he's given a divine mandate where he has this divine vision from God saying, Hezekiah, you need to go tear down the high places, you need to go reopen the temple, and you need to, to reestablish the priest. There's nowhere that says that. He said he just set out to do what he knew to be right. And as he set out to do what he knew to be right, he did it, but then the enemy immediately came and attacked him. And I think I look at this story as we, we look and recognize how to face life's bully, how to face the enemy, is to remember that many times when we take great steps of faith for God, the enemy's going to try to come in and undermine that faith and that faithfulness and the courage in which you've just taken. He's going to always try to undermine and take back what it is that you've done. But I also think when I look in this story, I'm reminded that, that really we need to come to learn to expect both seasons in our life and in our journey with Christ that we need to continually expect both seasons. There's going to be high seasons, seasons of advancement, but then there's also gonna be low, what we would call low seasons, seasons where there's times where God's doing a deep work in our lives, dealing with things in our lives, and perhaps revealing things in our lives that need to be dealt with. That if they're not dealt with, as we'll look at next week, the enemy can then turn, in turn use them against us. So we need to allow God to use both seasons to bring change and development in us, and we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, 1 Peter, 1 and 2 Peter are two letters written to New Testament believers who are undergoing suffering, undergoing hardship, and they were written to encourage them and remind them, number one, God hasn't forgotten, he's still faithful, what you're facing is a part of, of where you're at in your faith, and God's using it to refine and shape your heart, shape your life. But look what the apostle Peter tells, tells the believers in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised by it. It's part of life. Jesus talked about, in John 15, he talks about the seasons of pruning that we'll go through. He talks about seasons of, of cutting away, things that must be dealt with. And really, God will use every season of life, and he'll redeem every season and use it. He never wastes the season that you're in. He never wastes the hardship that you're in. He never wastes the difficulty that you're in. And we can use every single thing we face in life to learn to lean on him more. A devotional that I'll pull out and use from time to time, um, and I think I've read from it here before, is called Come Away, My Beloved by Francis Roberts. And if you've ever read this devotional, Come Away, My Beloved, it's written kind of as, a, as God writing almost a love letter or an understanding letter to a believer and understanding how he's using situations in their life, how he's working, and how everything he's doing, even down to discipline, guidance, hardship, he's, using it from, he's doing it from a perspective of love and desire to grow our faith. 
Listen to this one, this, just this one devotional out of this book, Come Away, My Beloved. He says, my child, do not expect the trials to be lighter than in the past. Why should you think the tests would be less severe? I test all things, and then there are things of your life that I have yet to test and I have not touched. Do not look for rest. The days ahead may call for greater endurance and more robust faith than you ever needed before. Welcome this, for you must surely know how precious are the lessons learned through such experiences. Even if you are unable to fully anticipate them with joy, you can certainly gain an appropriate appreciation of them in retrospect. Apply your heart to learn wisdom. This goal transcends every other aim and any other good that comes out of the pressure period that is an added blessing in excess. Seek me above all else. And it's a reminder that God uses, he redeems, and he never wastes a season or a space or a challenge of your life. And so I would just encourage you and remind you in that to remember that as we go through life, yes, the enemy's an opportunist. He's going to try to use the seasons that you're in, but we have to remember the big picture. God's always in control, that God's always faithful, and he's always with us in the midst of it. The second thing I would encourage you when you look at the story is not only to remember that every mountain has a valley, the second thing I would encourage you to remember is to expect a fight. Is to expect a fight. If, if you have an adversary, he's called your adversary for a reason. It's because he opposes you, because he stands against you. I think we have seen by now many stories in the news, whether it be through bullies who are cyberbullying, whether it be bullies in school, any number of stories we read in the news about different bullies and how they'll affect individuals. And the tragedy in many of the stories is that it often comes to light after someone has harmed themselves or even worse, has taken their own life. And then there'll be the, the acknowledgement of what was taking place and the bullying that was going on. Well, the Bible tells us that life comes with a very real bully not one that's going to harass you on Facebook or harass you in the hallways, but rather the Bible says that you have a very real adversary, the devil. When you look in scripture, the, the devil has two different names that are used. One is devil, which means his name, that late name literally means accuser or slanderer. When you look at the name Satan, that name specifically means adversary, that he stands against you and he stands opposed to you in every step and every aspect of your faith. But he's very real. The Bible says he's very, very real. In fact, in, in C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he says that the enemy, the devil, um, one of his greatest tactics is to get people to forget that he's real. One of his greatest tactics is for us to just kind of lull him away into all of the, the fantasy stories and all the other things that we would hear and all of the, the things that are just, we would put in the category of being fairy tales. But the Bible says a very different picture that he's a very real enemy and he's out, he's the enemy of your soul and he's out to destroy and undermine everything about you and everything that God wants to do in you. I referenced a few verses about him last week, but I'd love to just read these with you together. If you could put these on the screen for me, if you could put 2 Corinthians uh, chapter two on screen for me. This is talking specifically about unforgiveness and the apostle Paul is giving instruction on unforgiveness, but look at what he says about the devil. He says, in order that, he says to forgive the believer, he says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. If you could go ahead to Ephesians chapter six. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And if you can go ahead to one more, 1 Peter chapter five. We looked at this one in more detail last week. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for 
for someone to devour. But look at that. He says, your enemy. It's personal. It's your enemy. He's, he's standing against you. In the two previous verses we, we looked at, where it says we talk about his strategy, some translations would say stratagems, that that word that is used to describe how the enemy works against you and how he works against your faith, your marriage, your family, everything about you, that word, that stratagem that's used, it, what it describes is a very systematic, well-thought-out, laid-out plan to undermine. It's talking about something that's not come up lightly, not something that's just on a whim. It's talking about spending, spending an eternity up till you're here in this moment to be able to undermine you. The good thing about the enemy that we face is while he is far stronger than you or I ever could be on our own, that the one who lives in us, if you're a believer, the Bible says that the, the devil is inferior to the authority and power of God. If you look in Job, the story of Job, and I won't go into the full detail of the story, but there's a certain part where God summons the devil to come and to stand before him and to give an account of what he's doing. And the, the devil comes and stands before God, and the devil says to God, God says, where have you been? Not that God didn't know, but wanted the, to hold the enemy to account. And he says, where have you been? And the enemy says, I've been going to, roaming to and fro over the earth. I've been looking for opportunities to, outlay, to, to lay out my strategies my plans against the people who trust you. But God says he summons him. It's an, it's an understanding that the enemy always has to answer to God. But what we must remember is that while he does still answer to God, we still can expect a fight from this enemy. When, as I mentioned in the story we've looked at, that many times in the Old Testament, an enemy that comes against the people of God, that they're used to bring a picture of how the enemy works, and that the, the king of Assyria and the Assyrian army is no different. When it comes to the Assyrian army in the Old Testament and the world power that they were at the time, they were a force like no other. They were a brutal force that if you knew the Assyrian army was coming for you, you would want to pack up and leave as fast as you possibly could. The Assyrian army, in, in the strength of its day, they had, in, they had cities and they had schools within their cities that were dedicated to training in warfare and how to, how to psychologically wear down your enemy. When they would come into it, when the Assyrian army would come in and they would conquer a city, they would conquer the, and defeat the ones who were there, one of the first things they would do after they had broke through the enemy walls and they established their authority in the city is they would find every elder, they would find every leader, every military leader, every general, and they would find the king and they would bring them out alive in front of the people. They'd have the people gather around and they would watch. And then the enemy would then, the Assyrian army would then take those leaders and they would skin them alive in front of the people. And then they would take the skin and they would lay it out as a reminder saying, this is what happens when you stand against us. In the Assyrian cities when, where, they, where they came out from, where they marched out from against their enemies, that they would take, they would have pyramids sitting outside the door, the gates of their cities. And the pyramids were not made from stone or rock or pebble. The pyramids were made from the heads of the armies that they had defeated and had stacked outside the city walls. When the Assyrians would bring in dignitaries and bring in kings to come and to appear before them and to perhaps have a banquet with them to talk strategy, the kings, every king would have an inner chamber or a room that he could bring the other dignitaries, the other kings, the other officials before, and they would come and they would sit at this great banquet hall and they would sit there. And while they would eat, all the walls would be decorated with very, very graphic pictures of what the king did to his enemies and to those who opposed him, much like Hezekiah in this story. We see that they were very trained in coming and, and just in psychological warfare, in wearing down and in breaking and bringing fear. 
They stood against the enemy and they came against an individual who stood against them in any way possible. When you look at the story, if you look in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 10, I want you to read when, when, the Assyri- when Sennacherib's general arrives outside the city gates, the Assyrian army was a massive army and they had conquered up to this point before they arrived outside of Jerusalem. Up to this point, they had defeated 45 different fortified cities in the land of, of Israel. And so report after report was coming to Hezekiah of city after city after city after city that was falling to this massive army that was coming for him. And as they were now about 30 miles away, the report said that Lachish had fallen. Lachish was about 30 miles away. So they were about two days travel away from the city of Judah, of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib sends his general, sends his commander to come to the city. And listen to this, what he says. Listen to the psychological warfare and the way that he begins to speak to Hezekiah, to his rulers, and to the people. Verse 10. It says, this is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says the Lord our God will save us from, his, from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you. To, you. to let you die of hunger and thirst, did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one God and burn sacrifices on it. And let me pause there. We're going to read on. But just reading just this description from this, this field commander who's coming before Hezekiah, standing outside the wall and shouting up to the officials, just the, the language he's using would, would send the message that you've got an inside man. You've got a traitor. You've got someone who's telling me what it is you're saying to your people on the inside. So immediately he begins to send the message. I already know what's happening behind these walls. I already know what you're telling your people. I already know what you're doing. It's just this message, this psychological warfare to wear down, but then read on, verse 13. Do you not know what I and my predecessors have done to all the people of the other nations? Were the gods of these nations ever able to deliver their their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my predecessors destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God or any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my predecessors. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? And if you read on in the story, it says that Sennacherib continues to send messages to harass Hezekiah. It says that he even, in verse 17, it says that King Sennacherib even wrote letters that were ridiculing the Lord God. But he sends a message, and it's a message of fear. It's a message that's intended to disarm faith. It's a message that's intended to strike fear and defeat in the heart of everyone who was listening. If you remember, the people had gathered on the wall, according to the story, and they were, they were listening and listening into this exchange between the field commander who's standing there and speaking to Hezekiah and to his leaders. But there's something else that takes place in this story that, that just really speaks to the tactics of the enemy that I want you to see that we can easily miss. It's, it's found in verse 18 in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. It says they call out in Hebrew to the people, but to get a better understanding of it, I want to have you turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 36. We'll read verses 11 through 15. This is continuing in the interaction between the field commander and King Hezekiah and his men standing on the walls as they're shouting out, but this is, this is something that describes what takes place. Listen to this, verse 11. It says, then Elikim, Shibna, and, jo- and Joah said to the field commander, those are Hezekiah's leaders, they're standing on the wall. 
They say to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, was it only to your master that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the, the king of Assyria. He says, don't be misled. My king is too powerful for your, your army. My king is too powerful for your king. In fact, my king is too powerful for your God. He says, there is, this is so big and so powerful, your God can't even answer this. But then he does something else, and he, this is what he's declaring to the people. The, the leaders are sitting on the wall, and they said, listen, we understand, we know your language, so let's talk in this language. I don't want everyone else to hear this. I don't want everyone else to hear what's being said. And so the, the Assyrian king shouts, uh, the, the Assyrian field commander shouts back up, and he says, this message is for everyone in this city. Everyone in this city is about to die, and everyone in this city is about to fall. But he uses their own language against them. And when I read that story and I think about how the enemies, the tactics of the enemy and how the Assyrian army and the Assyrian king is a picture of how the enemy works, that it's a reminder that the enemy knows the language he has to use in your life to strike fear. He knows the language he has to use to speak into your situation, to strike doubt. He knows the language he has to use to speak into your, into your faith. He knows the language he has to use to speak into your life. It's a picture of how the enemy works. And many times, it, it'll, be, it'll be doubt about your marriage, like, it's, this is never going to change. This situation's never going to get different. It might be in a delayed promise that, that God has put on your heart, and it's the doubt of, this is, really, is this, is this that God's put on your heart? Is this really ever going to come to pass? It could be in thing and situation after situation after situation, but the enemy knows the language. Your enemy, the devil, knows the language he has to use to speak into your life to strike fear and doubt and to try to undermine your faith. And so one of the things that I've said before, the best thing that you and I can do is to learn to recognize the enemy's voice when he speaks. And it's not like this outside audible voice that we hear somewhere else, but more times than not, it's, just, it's in our own thoughts it's going to sound just like your own thoughts. It's going to just sound just like your own doubts. It's going to sound just like your own fears because the enemy knows the language that you use to be able to strike fear and intimidation in your heart. And so the best way to recognize how the enemy speaks and how his voice would sound when he begins to speak is that every single time his whisper, the language that he's using that is speaking right to your heart, every single time, it's always going to leave you hopeless, doubting, or confused. The enemy's voice will always leave you hopeless, doubting, or confused. But we would be wise to begin to recognize and learn that we have a very real enemy, an adversary, the devil who stands against you. And he will do anything to strike fear and anxiety in your life. He will do anything to undermine the, your, faith, your trust in the faithfulness of God, anything that he can to undermine your, your trust in the promises of God, anything that he can to get you to not trust in how God may, can come through in your life. The Assyrian king even later tells through the, the field commander, he says, come on, just make peace with my terms. Make peace with the way I want it to be. That he's just offering compromise and everything to try to undermine the, undermine the people and undermine their faith. 
But if we can go through life and realize that life comes with its highs and lows, we can go through life and we can recognize that we should expect a fight, that we have a very real enemy, an adversary, the devil who stands against us. But not only can we go through life expecting a fight, but the truth is that you and I can go through life expecting a win. Is that if you're a believer, you can go through life knowing that in the end, God has the final say. You can go through life knowing that God always has the final word. See, sometimes we will allow our minds and allow our faith to maybe inadvertently be affected by Hollywood, be affected by movies, be affected by our world. And sometimes in Hollywood, or many times in Hollywood, they will portray this image that the battle lines are equally drawn. That there's this ultimate struggle between light and dark, good and evil, and that really the, the outcome hangs in the balance, all depending on which side responds with which way and which strategy is laid out. And you and I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have got to remember, if for nothing else this morning, is to remember that the battle lines are not equally drawn. The Bible says for the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ, that the decision has already been made. That you have the authority of Jesus Christ living in you. And so as I have said many times, that when you step into a situation, when you step into a moment, when you step into a challenge, you carry the authority and the power of a different realm into that moment. That when the enemy comes to whisper and begins to place doubt and lies in your mind and in your heart to undermine your faith and to try to, to wear you down, those are the moments that we begin to remember the faithfulness of God. We begin to look to who he is and rehearse his faithfulness again and again and again so that just like when Jesus was in the wilderness with the devil and the, his enemy, the adversary, the devil, came and began to speak lies to him, the enemy, that Jesus began to counter him with the word of God, with the authority of God, with the truth of who God is. Look at how Hezekiah responds. He has the, the enemy there outside the gate and look at verse 7. It's a charge to his people and to his leaders, but I think as much as it's a charge, it's a prayer and it's a reminder to himself. Verse seven, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had said. That he really encouraged the people. He said, don't forget, this, this is the truth. It's not what the king of, of Assyria says. It's not everything the king of Assyria has done. The truth is that we have a far greater power standing with us than any massive army that can come marching against us. And so we, we must continually remember and put our faith in God because he's the one who's faithful so when you look at the, the outcome, look in the outcome, verse, uh, verse 22, or verse, verse 22, we'll read this in just a moment. Just keep this in mind when we think about the outcome of how God solved this situation for them, how God stepped in and dealt with it, that when it comes to the Assyrian army, the Assyrian army, I've already shared with you how fast they advanced, how much they had defeated, how there had been 45 other cities that had fallen up to this point, and they were now about 30 miles away. The Assyrian army, historians tell us that the Assyrian army was about a mile and a half wide and that it was about 100 yards deep. So a mile and a half wide, 100 yard deep army that's destroying anything in its path. According to historians, an army that size with the warfare that they had, they could travel about 15 miles a day. So they were about two, they were about two days travel away from Jerusalem and they were there getting ready to come and to destroy, destroy Jerusalem. But then look at, look at what happens. It says, so the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem 
from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all the others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought gifts of offering to, to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah. But it says that God took care of them on every side. And the story goes on to tell us that God came and he annihilated and he wiped out the enemy lines. And I take that to think about how God stepped into this moment. You have this massive army. Massive army takes, travels 15, 15 miles a day, takes months to finally move into place, takes months to finally get outside of the door of Hezekiah and the city to come and to wipe them out. And what it took months to set up and do, God undid in a moment. God undid it in a moment. It doesn't matter how much the devil's schemes or his stratagems or things that he would lay out against you, God can undo it in a moment. He can undo the works of the enemy in your marriage, in your family, in your home, in your circumstances in a moment. But it takes continually lifting our eyes and putting our faith back on him. And I love how the story says, it, it really ends in verse 22. It says, speaking of God, it said, he took care of them on every side. That he took care of them on every side. It would mean that there was not a place or a space or a part of who they were that was not protected by the faithfulness of God. Many times when you read through the Psalms, there's, the psalmist will use a phrase, Psalms 3 is a great one that uses this phrase a lot, but it'll say, it's talking about the faithfulness of God, and he'll say, God, you, 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 you're a shield around me. You ever read that phrase in scripture? You're a shield around me. We talk about the faithfulness of God of being a shield, and the picture we get is, is, is you have this shield that will then come between you and whatever it is that's coming against you, and that's a comforting picture. But truth is, that's not the real picture that the, that, that the psalmist was using when he talked about God being a shield around him. The real language, the way the psalmist would write it when he says that you're a shield around me, the real language is the psalmist says that you take me and you draw me into yourself. That he says you take me and you pull me into who you are. And it's your presence, it's your wraparound presence, it's who you are that surrounds every part of who I am and leaves not, not one part of me un unprotected or uncovered. And that's the picture that we get with, with God, with, with the nation of Israel, with King Hezekiah and the Assyrian army, is God became a shield around them. It says he took care of them on every side. That there wasn't a part that was forgotten there wasn't one avenue that was too small, that in God's eyes it all mattered until God took care of all of it. And I just use that as an encouragement and as a reminder for each one of you this morning as we sit here. I think to best summarize what we've talked about this morning, Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, that is a question without an answer because there's nothing you can put there to say, but this Oh, but this, and you look at that where you say, but this, would say, but God, but God is faithful. I want to read on to you out of Romans chapter eight, it's verse 37. It says, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is faithful to the end. He is faithful to the end. And so I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads this morning for just a moment. And with every head bowed, every eye closed, Friends, if you're here this morning and we've been talking about the faithfulness of God and we've been talking about the strategies of the enemy and how he works against our lives and seeks to undermine our faith, 
If you're here this morning, one of the things we've talked about is that God does step into our lives. He steps into our situations and he steps into our pain. And I believe that for some here this morning, they've been struggling. There's things that you'd love to have prayer with. And I want to pray for you and invite you to come in just a moment. But before I do, if you're here this morning and you've yet to place your faith in Christ, you've yet to make him first, to make him the centerpiece of your life, then whether or not you realize that God has already stepped into your pain and he stepped into your life by offering his son Jesus Christ on the cross. The Bible says by offering Christ on the cross and Christ coming back, raising again, that he offers us new life, that he offers us hope in him. And the way that we experience that new life and that hope in him is not by getting our lives together and being all religious or perfect in any sense of the word, but rather it comes to a place of just trusting in him coming to a place of repentance, turning from who we are and turning to who Christ is.